You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Hey there, my name is John Whitaker, and I am glad you're joining me here on this message from Hill City Church. I'm filling in for Josh while he's having a great family vacation. He's off with Shana and the girls and, uh, and invited me to speak, so I'm excited to be able to share with you. And some of you I know, uh, some of you I, I may have never met, and so uh, let me just introduce myself a bit. I, I've known Josh for years. I was one of his professors at Boise Bible College, and I've been connected with Hill City Church and Capital City Christian Church that used to meet in the same space, and those two churches have merged. And so I've been familiar with both these churches and a lot of the people in churches for a long time. And so it made sense for Josh to invite me just to come and share as we continue walking through the book of Ephesians. And uh, just by way of a handy resource, if you're enjoying this study of Ephesians, I've got a little resource online. I provide a lot of online resources. And one of my resources is called the Listener's Commentary, where I teach straight through Bible books. And I actually have a commentary available online through your podcast player or at listenerscommentary.com that goes straight through the book of Ephesians. And so if you're enjoying this study through Ephesians over the summer here at Hill City, then one of the ways you could engage even more with that book is by checking out the listener's commentary slash Ephesians, and you can check that out and uh, study Ephesians just through the whole summer in your own personal study as well. This week, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And to set that up, let me tell you a little bit of uh, a little story. My son, who is now an adult and has his own kids, but when he was uh, younger, man, he had just a massive appetite. It was like he could never eat enough. Uh, no matter how much we fed him, no matter you know where we ate, it seemed like he was always hungry for more. He, he just never could get enough. So much so that I used to uh, joke with him when he was like five, six, seven years old. I would tell him, like, dude, when you get to be a teenager, I'm giving you a food allotment. This is what you get. And then the rest, you're going to have to catch out of the river or hunt for yourself in the woods because I can't afford to feed you. Kid just always had a huge appetite. So one, uh, one time, uh, he was five years old. Uh, his grandma and grandpa wanted to take us all out to dinner, and we went to the Golden Corral. This is like, like awesome because, you know, you can get as much food as you want. And so we go to the Golden Corral buffet, and my, my little five-year-old son grabs a plate, and he goes and he gets a massive plate of vegetables and fruit. At least he started with the good stuff. And so he eats a huge piled plate of fruit and veggies. Then he goes and gets another plate and he comes back with a bunch of fried shrimp and a bunch of chicken and meat. And he eats all this meat. Then he goes and gets more fruit and veggies and another pile plate. He went through five plates, five plates of food for a five-year-old. And when he was all done with all this food, he leans back in his chair, pushes his plate forward, crosses his arms and says... Now that's what I call restaurant paradise. For the first time in his life, I think he had finally gotten enough and he was full. And the reality is, is when you're full, you don't want more, right? And so he could, he could just push the plate away and like, I'm done. I am full. I've gotten enough. And, and when, you, when you have enough, you don't want more. The problem is... Um, that there's something that seems like is hardwired into us as people, isn't there? There's something that, like, it's almost like our default operating thing is 
we, we're never completely satisfied. We never have enough. We're never totally full. We're always at least wanting a little bit more in certain areas, right? Not, not maybe in every area, but it, it, we, we, we are never completely satisfied. We're looking for more. And that leads us to live life from a place of insufficiency. I need more. Leads us to maybe even live life with a little bit of envy. We look at other people and we wish, man, I just wish I had what they had. Look at their house, their car, their vacation home. Look at whatever it is. Look at, and we want more. We're always looking for more. Um, And our culture here in America caters to that, appeals to that, plays on that, whatever that is within us that wants more. It, I mean, the whole advertising industry is built around convincing us there's something we've got to have and we need to have it now and we want more. And so we end up living with this desire for more, more, more. And so no matter how successful we are, I just wish I could be a little bit more successful. Look, they're a little more successful than me. I wish I could be like them. Or no matter how good looking we are, we can always find the flaws in how we look and we wish we just looked a little bit better. No matter uh, how nice our house is, we're always looking at someone else or we're looking at other homes. It's like, what if I could just, right? We want a little bit more of a house or a little bit more of a vacation or a little bit more time. No matter how secure our life is, we want a little bit more money. We wish our bank account was a little more full, right? And we're always wanting more. Well, what we're going to see here in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and following, is Paul offers a prayer uh, on behalf of the original audience and by extension to us, he offers this prayer and his prayer really speaks to this fundamental human issue of constantly craving more. And he wants us to see some things uh, that maybe we've overlooked or maybe that we've minimized, maybe we haven't realized. He wants us to see some things that would help address this striving after more to help us see how much we really have. And so we're going to be here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. And just to set the context, if you watched last week's message uh, where Josh preached through Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, Paul uh, offered this glorious praise in the preceding paragraph to God for all the spiritual blessings that he gave us in Jesus. And Josh listed off seven of those blessings to help us see what Paul was getting at and praising God for. Like, here's all these incredible blessings that God has given us by his spirit and his work in our lives that we have. Well, now in verse 15, Paul shifts to then saying directly to the original audience, here's how I'm praying for you. In view of all that God has done, in view of the fact you're part of God's people, Here's here's my prayer for you. And so it reads like this, verse 15. He says, for this reason, because of all that God has done for us, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints. Notice that, that Paul has heard of their faith and their love for all the saints, which suggests uh, that Paul, Paul doesn't know everyone he's writing this to, that it's to a bigger audience than just the church at Ephesus. He's only heard of their faith. And so because he's heard of their faith, because he's heard about how their love for God's people, that's what he means by the saints. The saints aren't like really holy dead people that got a statue made out of them. The saints just refers to God's people. So because I've heard of you and your love for all of God's people, he says, 
I do not cease to give thanks to you or for you, remembering you in my prayers. And so having heard of how you're now part of God's people and you're, you're, you have faith in Jesus and you're loving God's people, I'm constantly remembering you, thanking God for you, and I remember you regularly in my prayers. And what's he praying? Verse 17, he says, I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, here's his request, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And so he's praying that in some way God would give them, it seems like, his spirit. Like, not that they don't have the spirit. They already, they're, they're believers. They've got the Holy Spirit. That, like a special working of the spirit. I'm praying for God's spirit to work in you in such a way that you have increased wisdom, uh, increased insight, discernment, uh, revelation in the knowledge of him. So in your knowledge of God, I'm asking for God's spirit to help you see everything that you actually already have in Christ, in God. And when God's spirit answers this prayer of Paul's and helps the original readers and us actually see what God has done for us, Paul says in verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. And so that's going to be the effect. Like he wants the spirit of God to open their spiritual eyes, the eyes of their heart. He wants the spirit of God to open their eyes so that they can see some of the things that they have. And he's going to list off three specific things. Here's three things you have in Christ that you need to see, you need to understand, you need to know that will deepen your knowledge of God, that will deepen your relationship with God, will deepen your satisfaction, your contentment in life. So the first one he mentions is hope. I'm wanting the eyes of your heart to be enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Um, he, he wants us to know, them to know, and us, the hope that we've been called to in Christ, that we've been given hope. And hope is an incredibly necessary and powerful thing. Like when, when people don't have hope, they just quit on life, don't they? When, when, we, when, we, when we lack hope, um, when we're hopeless, it's really hard to press on through the difficulties of life. And one of the things we just have to come to terms with as we live life, and the longer we live life, we, I think we're confronted with this more and more, is this life is going to have its share of obstacles, hardships, setbacks, and suffering and sorrows. Life is just going to have that. And it's hope that helps us keep going when life is hard, when life is difficult, when life doesn't make sense. We need hope. Hope is an incredibly powerful thing. Psychologists will tell you that. It doesn't matter who you talk to. People literally uh, are dying for a lack of hope. And so hope is an incredibly powerful thing. And Paul's praying that we would see with our spiritual eyes the, the incredible hope that we have as God's people. And in the Bible, hope is not just like wish. Man, I sure hope things get better. I sure wish that things would be different. It's not what we're talking about. The word hope in, in Greek, in the Bible, doesn't mean a wish, doesn't mean I, I, I'm sure just kind of clinging by my fingernails, hoping something's going to turn out all right. What hope means is this. It's a confident expectation, an anticipation, 
of what God's going to do. It's a confident expectation that God will fulfill his word and his promises to us. Hope. We are certain. It's just it hasn't happened yet. And so hope is is not a wish. It's a confident expectation of something that hasn't yet occurred, that we anticipate it happening when God finally fulfills all his promises to us. And Paul is praying that we would know the hope that we have. Um, And our hope as followers of Jesus, really, there's a lot of components to that, but there's three main ones. Three key components to our hope is the resurrection of the body, um, the the making of a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, right? God's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And then the the glorious presence of God, experiencing and seeing God himself. Those are the three core components of our hope. Um, In fact, in the book of Revelation, it puts all that together this way. Uh, The apostle John in his vision and revelation in Revelation 21 says this, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. God's going to make a brand new universe and he's going to make a new earth. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And the reason for that is because the sea represents uh, chaos and the source of evil and the gateway to the abyss in their culture. So the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, with people. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. Do you hear the repetition? God will dwell with them. He will be with them. He will be with them. We're going to experience the very presence of God. And so God himself will be with them, and catch this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's our hope. And we have been given this hope, this destiny, this end goal of a brand new world where all that's wrong with this world is made right and all the evil and brokenness is removed, where we will live together with God in perfect harmony and with each other in perfect harmony, and the world will be just as God designed it to be. We've been given this hope, and Paul is praying that the eyes of our heart would be open so that we could see this glorious destiny that we have, this glorious hope that we have, that we're just waiting for. It's not not as if we're hoping it's going to happen, right? Like we're wishing it's going to happen. We know it just hasn't happened yet, and we're looking forward to it. And that gives us purpose. That gives us meaning. That gives us courage. That gives us direction as we go through life with all the hardships, difficulties, the good, the bad, the ups and the downs. We have an incredible hope. Well, that's not all. Paul says there's more. So not only am I praying, Paul says, that you would know the hope to which he's called you, but he says, I'm praying that you would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, among God's people, in God's people? Uh, Now, there's actually quite a bit of debate among scholars as to who's getting the inheritance, Right? Like, is God the giver of the inheritance or the receiver of the inheritance? And scholars love to debate these things. The difference is this, is are we as God's people the inheritance he's receiving or are we as God's people the recipients of the inheritance God is giving? That's the question. Um, 
And both are true biblically, actually. In fact, you read to the Old Testament, Israel is repeatedly spoken of as God's inheritance, his portion and his prize, his great heritage. Um, Israel is frequently spoken that way in the Psalms and in uh, the prophets. And, and so it could be that we as God's people are the, the glorious inheritance that God himself is getting. Or the opposite is also true, that we as God's people are receiving a glorious inheritance from God. Which is it? It's not 100% clear, and that's why there's a debate. I tend to think it's the, the, the second one, that we are receiving an inherit, inheritance that God is giving. And the reason I think that is because uh, of just the fl- main reason is the flow of the sentence, like the hope of his calling, the uh, riches of his inheritance, the greatness of his power. With the hope of his calling and the greatness of his power that we'll look at in, here in, in a second, both of those are obviously things God is giving to people. Why would he break the flow in the middle one? And so I tend to think that we are the recipients of a glorious inheritance that God is giving. But either way, the main point Paul is making is is wealth. Like, we have riches. Notice that. Like, what are the riches of his inheritance? Whether we're the, the inheritance being given or whether we're receiving the inheritance, we have wealth untold. And not just a little bit of wealth, glorious wealth, right? Like, glorious riches that, that God in his goodness is intending to bless us as his people with wealth Untold wealth we can't imagine, not superficial, shallow wealth of, you know, large paychecks that allows us to go on glorious vacations. Not that that's all bad, but wealth beyond that, wealth we can't even imagine um, that, that God is going to bless us as his people when he brings all things to fruition. We will have wealth untold. And that wealth even begins now that Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it to overflowing that he wants to give us this this incredible, abundant, rich life. And we have that beginning now and forever. And sometimes in Christian circles, we act as if um, desiring good things desiring riches, glorious riches. We act as if having desires for that is a bad thing. And so we need to, you know, like be stoic and self-disciplined and have no desires for good things. And, And yet that's just not the way the Bible works. The Bible regularly promises us rewards for following Jesus. It regularly promises us good things as part of that. God is the kind of person, if you read through the story of scripture, who wants to bless people and bless them with good things. He knows how we're, we're made. And so Having a desire for good things is not the problem. It's just where we find them. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis, who says this. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is being offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the ocean. We are far too easily pleased. God is offering us, like, infinite joy, Lewis says, wealth untold, riches untold, and it's, it's greater than we can ever imagine. And we're fooling around with things like drink and sex and ambition, right, and that kind of wealth. And, 
And Paul says, I want the eyes of your heart to be enlightened so that you would know the glorious wealth you have as God's inheritance. Um, and so we, we are invited into this relationship with God, and we've been given uh, the, the promise of infinite joy and wealth untold. Look, if Paul had only prayed that we would know um, the great hope we have and the glorious riches we have, that would have been enough, but he doesn't stop there. He's praying that we, we might know, in the next one, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Do you catch that? Like he's, he's asking uh, God to enlighten our heart that we could see uh, not just that we have a little bit of power, that we have immeasurable power. Not even just immeasurable power, immeasurably great power available to us that's been unleashed for our advantage and our benefit by God in Christ. Like power. And power is one of those things, again, that we often clamor after and we want, isn't it? We want, um, you know, the power to influence others. We want the, the power of maybe a secure life because we have plenty in our bank account. We want the power of status and position on our job or whatever. We want power over our kids. Like we, we love power and people crave Power And Paul is praying that we who are in Christ would realize like there is a measurably great power uh, that has been unleashed for your benefit and your advantage as a follower of Jesus. You have been given incredible power. Um, and we will talk more about one of the key expressions of that power in next week's message. Uh, but for now, we need, to, we need to hear what Paul is saying that, that God has given us and has blessed us with immeasurably great power. What kind of power? How great is that power? Well, Paul then at this point kind of goes on and, and uh, just rattles on about what this power is like and how incredible this power is. He says that he wants us to know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, and that power is according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hands in the heavenly places. How great is the power that's available to us? Well, it's resurrection power. It's exaltation power. It's the kind of power that raised Jesus out of the dead and exalted him to his right hand. That's the very same kind of power that's now available for us, available to, to us. And he seated him in the heavenly places, Paul goes on, Verse 21, far above, not just a little bit above, not slightly above, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that could be named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. We need to understand a little bit about the cultural background to hear what Paul is saying the way the original audience would. Um, and you, you can get this when you read Acts chapter 19 and you see what happens in Ephesus. So we're reading the letter to the Ephesians. Ephesus was part of the original audience of this. And when those believers first came to faith in Jesus in Ephesus, the book of Acts tells us that one of the things they did was they gathered together in downtown Ephesus and they had a book burning. And specifically what they burned was their magic books, their incantation and formula books. Why? Because magic, Ephesus, and the, the surrounding region was a stronghold 
for ancient magical practices. Um, and magic in the ancient world worked by trying to name a, the name of a, a spirit or a being that you could then manipulate and force them to do something you wanted. That was, that was one of their ways they tried to achieve and gain power was magic. And so they had all sorts of incantations and formulas and magical objects and all these things. And they would name certain names. And so you want that girl to date you? Well, you need to know the, the, the particular spirit that's you know, over the dating realm. And then you would go through the right incantation and you would name that spirit's name. And right now, all of a sudden, you know, that spirit's going to work on your behalf to get that girl to pay attention to you and to name you, right? That's the way it worked in the ancient world. Now, it may be different for us, but we still we still want that same sort of control, that same sort of power. And what, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus has been exalted far above whatever power you try to call on, whatever place you try to find control, security, authority, dominion. Jesus is over every power. And in their case, every ma- magical name you knew and every spiritual force you tried to appeal to, to advantage your life and to secure your life, Jesus is exalted far above all of that. Um, those things are like little peons down there, like ants compared to how high Jesus is, that he's exalted above all of that. And God, verse 22, put all things, not just some things, not most things, all things under his feet in subjection to Jesus. He is king of kings, Lord of lords over everything. So he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Notice that God exalted Jesus and gave him as head, as Lord over the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in every way. Do you hear how that ends? Like, like Jesus is now this great exalted one. He's the head of the church and we're his body. We're connected with him and he's working in and through us. And, and, and we as the church are so full in Christ. We have so much in Christ. We, we have such a glorious destiny. We have such a wealthy inheritance. We have so much power in Christ that we are described here as the fullness of him, namely God, who fills everything in every way. Like we are the very expression of God's own glory in this world. And Paul uses the word fullness and fills to help us understand that that we have more than enough in Christ, that we have everything. We're full in Christ. And, And as we Listen to Paul's prayer. What he's praying is he's praying that we would realize we don't need to keep clamoring after things and searching after things and striving. We don't have to keep trying to get more that we have enough in Jesus. That's the point. Paul wants the eyes of our heart to be in line so we can see that we have more than enough in him. That when we're in Christ, we have more than enough. We have more than enough. Notice the three things specifically he lists. Hope, which has to do with destiny and purpose and meaning. Doesn't doesn't our world, like, aren't we looking for that? Like hope or riches or power, like meaning, purpose, hope, wealth, and power. Like these are the things that humans for, for centuries have You know, wars have been fought over these things, right? Like um, people, you know, corporate takeovers have happened. Like families have been split apart by pursuing after these things. These are the things that humans deep in their soul are constantly striving after. Hope, riches, power, and we already have them. We already have them 
in Jesus. We have been given more than enough in him. And Paul wants us to see that. And the problem is, is so often, even those of us in Christ are still searching after things. We're longing for things. And we go about our life wishing that we could have more. Um, we're still looking to, to get our soul satisfied. And the reason, the reason that happens is because we're looking in the wrong place. We're looking to satisfy our heart and our soul with the same things that uh, the rest of the world is looking to satisfy. But we're made for a different world. We're made for a, a different place. And so if we would shift our perspective and open our eyes, um, we would see that we have more than enough in Jesus. And we don't have to, we don't have to compare ourselves with the highlight reel of other people's lives on Instagram and think, man, why can't my life be like I wish I had? Sure would be nice if, why can't I go on a vacation like, right? Like we have hope. We have riches. We have power in Christ. Uh, famous wealthy person from a previous generation, Lee Iacocca, the one who saved Chrysler Corporation and all of that, you know, millions of dollars, super rich. And one of the things he said at the end of his life was this. He said, here I am in the twilight years of my life, and I'm still trying to figure out what this whole thing called life is all about. I can tell you this for certain. Fame and fortune is for the birds. He had more fame and more fortune than most of us ever will. And yet as he's looking back at his life, he's realizing, I think somehow maybe I missed it. I'm still not sure what I was supposed to be doing. I just know that being famous and having lots of money, that doesn't satisfy what's going on in my heart and soul. And the reason for that is because we're made for a different world. We're made for a different kind of wealth. We're made for a different kind of fame. We're made for a different kind of power. And Paul is praying that in Christ we would realize what we have, that we have more than enough in Jesus. And thus we wouldn't go about our life constantly striving and seeking after more. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.